Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to 2023 and episode 159 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Writer, director, and executive producer Robert C. Cooper is joining us in this episode. But before we get started, if you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it means a great deal to me if you click that like button, which will make a difference with YouTube and uh, awareness of the show and will help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. And giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops, and you'll get my notifications of any last-minute guest changes. And clips from this live stream are available now on GateWorld.net and will be available soon in the future on uh, the Dial the Gate uh, channel as well. As this is a pre-recorded episode, I've uh, taken questions submitted from fans on a separate YouTube video and added them to the the back third of this video. Uh, So you're going to find a number of those questions uh, there. Thank you to everyone who submitted. Couldn't get to everybody's, but uh, uh, I, I really appreciate you you guys taking the time so without further ado let's bring the gentleman in mr robert c cooper back again for more torture sir how are you good how are you i am very well i've been looking forward to um talking about this season with you this is a season of big uh changes for the show uh you had the first cast shake up you had the first uh network shake up uh, and j- things started moving in some different directions uh, for the series. Tell me about s- season six from your memory. The biggest change was, you know, uh, Daniel leaving and bringing Jonas Cornemic uh, into the mix, and um, that uh, that I've we've talked about before how that really energizes the chemistry i think and gives us new scenes to write just you know the takes the familiarity away and gives you kind of that a little bit of uncomfortable getting to know you uh drama that um i think makes the writing a little more interesting for a little while yes um what were you looking for in terms of what was uh uh, essentially a a um replacement for the the voice of reason for the archaeologist for the the kind of like a, a, a the the moral center of of the team um that's a loaded question i know yeah <laughs> all I, of I those things thought, what yeah. were you looking for robert i think it was uh also the alien perspective you know and i think one of the things that we tried to do to to help us create story was always look outside our own little uh house you know our own little world and um you know it 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 comes up 
a few times in the season where we start to maybe shift perspectives on who knows about the Stargate, what do they think about the Stargate. Um, you know, it's just, it just creates conflict. And, and to a certain extent, you know, you asked about a new network. Um, I mean, we started essentially <laughs> you know, writing our own experiences into the show. We had different <laughs> perspectives on the show. Uh, and so it was kind of like we were, you know, the whole uh, art imitates life thing where we were just sort of having fun with those new outsider points of view of what of what was going on in the Stargate program. You also had um, Damian Kindler join the yes. the writing team. Damian, yes, Damian had who I, who yes. I met. I first met Damian on my first staff job um, on a show called Sci Factor Chronicles of the Paranormal. We was the first time I had uh, gotten a writing job, and uh, uh, yeah, we met then and and uh, got to be friends and through that experience. He had uh, Joseph Malazzi once once coined. I think it was him who coined a, a Kindler gentler Stargate. <laughs> uh, Damien, uh, you know, he, he liked to push, actually, I feel, I feel like Damien liked to push boundaries in terms of both humor and kind of all aspects. Like, you know, he would pitch the more violent thing. He would pitch the more sort of wacky thing. Like he would always try and kind of push the envelope a little bit. Um, maybe again, from an outsider's perspective of mm. not knowing where the envelope was. Uh, so he could always push the edges up, you know? So he would say, well, why, why aren't you guys doing this? And sometimes we would react and say, Oh no, no, that's not the show. Um, and at other times you would kind of go, well, wait a minute. Why isn't that the mm -hmm. show? You know, it's um, a fair question. And the I was, sorry. I was just, the other thing I was going to say about Jonas um was you could argue, well, Teal'c was the alien outside perspective point of view, but he had already now been with the, the team and the show for well, 100 episodes. And, and, you know, I felt like we felt like he was one of us now. So, so even his, even, even Teal'c's perspective of having a, you know, an outsider come into the SGC was interesting uh, to see how far he'd come from being that guy. I would argue some of the the best scenes in <clears throat> excuse me in season six were of of Teal kind of, for want of a better word, educating Jonas on. What, yeah. it, what it is to be on Earth. You know, okay, stay in your lane. This is what is expected of you. This is what's not. Because he, right, had already had five years of experience. Yeah. Uh, you, you said art kind of imitating life in terms of you putting your own experiences into the show. What was it like moving to Sci-Fi Channel from from Showtime? Were there... Were there any like changes in notes that you had to get used to, like feeling out the rhythm of the people who you were communicating with week to week? Um, what what is that? What does that change feel like? Does it kind of feel like moving offices? 
you know, every executive they're 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 making they're making a salary. They're doing a job, and they feel like they should do the job. They're not just gonna twiddle their thumbs. So they will they will put their two cents worth in. Um, but okay. but for the large, you know, from from a, the biggest sort of perspective, you they bought the show because it was you know. It was a successful show, and, and the working. last thing they wanted to do was yeah. screw it up. <laughs> um, and they knew we knew the show better than anyone, and so they they were smart enough not to sort of jump in and and say uh, we have this whole new idea for for you. Um, go do that. It, it was it. It was really, um, it was really a, a sort of. I think as we went along, they certainly, and, and and I think more so when we were creating Atlantis, which was more their show, mm-hmm. right? It, it was the show they ordered and that they had kind of wanted. So, so they had a little more influence and, and point of view about what Atlantis should be, but. Um, you know, uh, not that the creative side of sci-fi didn't have a, a say or a stake in it, but but it's complicated mm. in terms of the, the way in which things happen. Stargate was brought to sci-fi by their acquisitions division. Um, so those guys had a, had a perception or an understanding of the value of the show in the marketplace. And and then you know we we obviously did really well for them right out of the gate. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a question of them trying to fix something that was broken. That's fair. Did you have um, any budget changes for this particular season? Did you have a greater budget? Was the budget cut in some way when you went over to Sci Fi Channel? You still had twenty two um, episodes for the first two years. The budget is complicated because, again, um, you know, nowadays it's a little simpler where you have streamers paying for the whole show or in in the case of network, they pay for the whole show. Whereas with Stargate, it was still sci-fi was paying for the U.S. acquisition. Okay, That's it. And MGM was then deficit financing international and selling the show internationally. And again, it was doing very well internationally. Um, so, so the budget, um, the, frankly, the budget was far more affected on a day-to-day basis by, by the dollar and tax credits, because we used to get a whole bunch of benefit from, from the swing in the dollar. And there was one point, and I frankly can't remember where it was, but, you know, the Canadian dollar got really strong at one point and that, I remember this, that really hurt yeah. uh, the budget of the show. Um, but, uh, I can't remember what season that was. I'd say the biggest budgetary challenge we had was again, was season one of Atlantis. That was where, you know, everybody wanted to make a new show, but, um, they had different ideas about how to go about it. Like, uh, starting a show is very expensive and we, we were, um, I think we were pretty good at, maximizing the resources we had already put in place for for sg1 
uh, sets and 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 uh, uh, and infrastructure, but uh, but the money they gave us for Atlantis was nowhere near enough to really make that show mm-hmm. well. We've not been able to. We've not been doing SG One uh, and kind of almost marrying the two shows together and sharing resources. Um, we couldn't have. We couldn't have pulled it off. I, I remember, I don't know if it was Brad or you saying for Atlantis, you know, for some of these shots, can we, I wish we could just put a window here, but we can't. There's, we're out of budgets. Well, it was, no, it was really, and I mean, even, or extras. Like, I mean, I wish we could have some, mm. some extra people walking around in this, in this shot. Um, so, yeah, season one of Atlantis was really tight. Um, I don't, I mean, we, I don't remember, uh, season six really having too much. I mean, look, we always we had a, a sort of pattern that we followed, which was mm. we would we would spend quite a bit at the very beginning of the season because we wanted people to get excited about the show coming back and feel like it was a you know uh, it was going to be a really big deal. And then we had a few smaller shows, but we always sort of built up again by mid season. And usually by the time we got to about ten, eleven, twelve we were over budget and and uh some of that was the battle between us the the sort of creative heads of the show and our line producers who who kind of always made it look like we were more over budget so that we would be more spendthrift and <laughs> and economical and then some really? money would then would then fall out and be like wait a minute we're not nearly as over budget as we thought. And, you know, it, it would be like the sky is falling. It was constantly mid season. The sky is falling. You have to do some cheaper shows. <laughs> and then we'd be like, but we need the, you know, the, the last episodes to be huge. Cause we want people to right. and come back. Yeah. And, uh, and then somehow miraculously, you know, when all is said and done, uh, we would be slightly under budget. So, like, <laughs> Phew, thank God for Ronnie Cox calling, calling Ronnie Cox. We need, a, yeah. we have another clip show, Ronnie. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, look, we we definitely tried to avoid those. Um, nobody loved it, but I also think, you know, some of my favorite, uh, you know, stories came out of out of clip shows you know like i wish they didn't have to be clip shows like we could have done those stories without the clips um but uh but i still love some of those um those clip episodes well as long as they're advancing the story you know and you guys effectively uh did that there's there's a major arc involved in each one of those uh, episodes you know season 1 the sgc is effectively shut down you know season 6 we're we're sharing this thing internationally season 7 we're setting up the ta- we're setting up the 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 chessboard for full circle you know and Ronnie Cox citizen participated Joe, in each citizen, of those citizen joe which is like my favorite citizen episode. joe is another great one you know that's fantastic that doesn't even feel like a, a a clip show at all it feels like a fan valentine at least that's what i felt about that episode yeah, yeah. so um Corin's, uh uh corn was going to be uh i think it's it's pretty obvious he had a, he was going to have an upward battle up uphill battle to fight no matter what he did um and i think that he pulled off 
what he was given uh, pretty admirably. The the I, I I imagine you anticipated some form of of backlash with 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 Daniel being absent. Did you anticipate the backlash that you guys actually received? Not to I'm not saying that we were happy about it mm. uh, in terms of the from the fan perspective. Obviously, they were upset about Daniel being gone, but we were kind of happy they were sad he was gone. Like, like if nobody had cared, that would have right. been a problem. So the more the more angry they were, in a way, the more we felt like, hey, we had created something that people loved, and now they're upset about it, and we understand that. And it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it, you know, and, and it's not like, you know, we willfully chose to to kill off Daniel it was you know Michael Shanks decided to leave the show for a little while and so um uh yeah I mean look I we knew it would be fans would be upset and on some level it was kind of gratifying that they were upset and and, something's uh, working yeah (laughs) or at least something had worked moving forward maybe another story yeah um like, and I think, by the way, that that Corin uh, did a brilliant job. Of other actors might have come in and been like, "I have to steal the scenes and own this place and be, you know, larger than life in order to fill the shoes of Daniel Jackson." And and I think what he did. Uh, well, was say, I'm going to tread lightly and try and be as likable as I can be, but let let the audience come to me instead of me trying to force myself on them. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact uh, uh, several uh, Jonas fans out there who had preference to him over over uh, Daniel. So it's it's interesting, kind of the, the back and forth. You know, you, you, you get... You get people on both sides at the end of the day. So, um, yeah, it's the the Save Daniel Jackson dot com uh, is archived up, but Stargate SG One Solutions the the uh, that still exists. So it's as a domain at least. It's it's interesting how these things continue to perpetuate forward. Right. So, um, Redemption One and Two. Uh, you wrote this one. This is the the introduction to. Uh, season six, we've introduced Anubis in our season five finale, and you have a lot of things going on in this episode. I, I love the episodes that are named in such a way as to reflect one or two or sometimes even three different things within that show, because this this episode is de- these these pair of episodes are definitely about uh, redemption on all different sides. You have you have the story of. Of uh, of Ryak coming to terms with uh, who his father is, you have uh, Jonas getting used to his place in the world of Stargate Command, um, and in some respects for McKay as well. Frankly, getting back in the good graces of Stargate Command with with uh, helping out the the problem. We are under a direct attack from Anubis in this one. Tell us uh, what what you remember about uh, about Redemption. I, I mean, as a young, a young film goer, before I even ever thought about 
being able to be in this business or really more of a dream I was heavily influenced by certain films and and you know uh I don't I think it's it's sort of trendy when you talk about the original three Star Wars movies to say Empire you know is your favorite or is the best one and 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 certainly the um the uh, Ewoks are are very polarizing in terms of <laughs> Since in, oh in Return of the Jedi, and we uh, we've certainly taken our shots at it a few times uh, in in Stargate with the furlings, but <laughs> um, but I mean, as a young sort of impressionable mind, Return of the Jedi was very uh, informative and formative for me in terms of. Uh, you know, seeing disparate, separate storylines converging, you know, like different missions all for the same purpose, mm-hmm. uh, working from different points of view. Uh, so you always, you had, you know, everybody working together, but apart. Uh, and, and the way in which that all create, like being able to cut from one, uh, one of those to the other to see the progress created just created dramatic so much dramatic tension uh, as opposed to having one storyline or even two um so that definitely kind of heavily influenced my approach to doing those types of stories where you would have these people off in different on different aspects of the mission separated in our case by planets mm-hmm. um, all working together from different sides of it. So someone's trying to deal with the gate problem going to blow up while someone else is trying to stop the weapon from, you know, uh, from causing the problem. And at the same time, you know, um, I, I actually don't remember where I learned this, but somewhere along the line, I learned that it's always good to have uh, more than one thing going on in a scene. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we got to stop this weapon from blowing up, but also are you my father? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and who are you and where have you been? You right. know, like, so, <laughs> so that, that, you know, you, you kind of know you have to tick those boxes when mm. you're, when you're coming up with a, a story and, and, um, uh, yeah, and then you know, look again. We often would bring a, an actor in for what seemed to be a uh, a guest starring role, and they pop so much and are so you know amazing. Um, we are just kind of compelled to want to bring them back, and you know, we talked about this in a previous conversation about. Mayborn and his evolution throughout the series. Um, but McKay obviously was probably, I would say the pinnacle example. Oh man. Ab- absolutely. He's, he's absolutely up there. You know, if you can, if you can think of someone that you'd, that you'd want to return. I re- I remember the announcement for, for Atlantis and being like, wow, on one hand and on the other hand, is this going to work? And we'll we'll obviously get into that discussion when we come to Atlantis. Um, but uh, yeah, it just, he just flew I mean, off the I page. Don't know if we ever, I don't know if we ever talked about this or if anyone else ever mentioned it, but 
you know, he wasn't originally the guy. In yeah, America, Benjamin but, Ingram. Uh, we had had gone through a long casting process, and um, and as I said, I've said before that you know, casting a show, particularly like this, where there's four or five leads, it's about finding the right chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you know, and you never know what you're going to get. Like you can have an idea and try and force it and say, "This is the character we've created for this show." Um, but sometimes you just don't find the actor that suits that role. And so at that, you know, at that point in the process, we kind of looked at each other and we're like, we kind of have the guy, we just have to change, (laughs) change the character a little bit. So, um, yeah, we, we, we always do. There's something I, I, I learned and got to give a lot of credit to, to Jonathan and Brad for is, 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 you know, uh, take the best actor that comes in for an audition, regardless of whether they're perfect for the role you created and, you know, change, change the script to suit the actor. Cause that's more valuable than mm-hmm. you, know, you trying to essentially, you know, execute your vision with, inferior tools if you've Uh, got something popping right in front of you i mean suppose you'd be crazy not to try and make it work exactly so yeah and and yeah i don't know go ahead no i just dave david's a a, a, you know incredible force force to be reckoned with and i think that you know this it would have been it would have been awkward for him to make the transition to Atlantis had he only appeared in Forty Eight Hours. I think Redemption really facilitates the the likability of his character, especially once Sam accepts him. That's the key because once Sam accepts him, then we are um, given permission as an audience to accept him as well because Sam's on our side. We're with right. Sam, so. right? Because he's he's a class of character that is what I like to call unlikable, likable, right? He's, he's, he's unlikable. You don't, you don't like him initially. And it's only after you kind of get to know him. He's a villain by, by his, in his, in his experience. And then the more you get to know him, the more you kind of appreciate him. Uh, and then you kind of get to like him. Um, so it takes a little while. He's Mm -hmm. more of an acquired taste, but also, I enjoyed disliking him at the same time. Well, yes. You know, when he would mistreat underlings, you know? I've always said that about, (laughs) you know, with with other writers in discussion about pitches and creating shows that, um, you know, you often use the the word likable uh, in terms of evaluating your lead character. But the truth is, a better word is watchable. Yeah. Like you don't have to create like the old school way of writing television was that your lead character had to be the hero and had to be likable. And a lot of actors would look at their part and give notes related to, well, this makes me unlikable. And it's like, "Mm, maybe that's just making you more three dimensional and more relatable because you're not perfect. Um, but I think there's, you know, and then and then we sort of fell into that long, long, dark hole of, uh, you know, 
anti-hero heroes of, of people horribly flawed, but at the same time, compellingly watchable. Um, and I think the reason is more than likability, we are attracted to competence and that competence can happen in one particular arena, uh, while the rest of the character is incredibly flawed. And Mm -hmm. so we admire that competence in that one arena at the same time, enjoy seeing them trip and fall and do bad things in other ways because it's much more related, relatable to our own lives, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breaking Bad. I mean, you look at that one. If Walter White is really good at doing something illegal, does it kind of make you feel bad that you're enjoying watching him do it? Or at least no, I would enjoy watching him get out of the situation that he put himself in. We all want to so. do. We all want to do dangerous, bad things with safety guardrails on. Like there's, something, <laughs> there's something kind of fun about living in that world. It's like why gangsters are so, you know, appealing. In the same mm-hmm. respect, you know, Tony Soprano was, you know, he was a murderous gangster, but he was also the best at it in the in the within the show. He was the smartest guy, and he also didn't want to be doing it. Like there was an aspect to him that. It was like he just wanted to be a good dad and he wanted mm-hmm. to get out. But he was also really good at what he did. <laughs> he was much better at that than anything else he could find to do in life or mm-hmm. that he could figure out to do in life. And so that created a push-pull that I think everybody is, you know, is, is interested and attracted to, is that sort of struggle. Um, and at the same time, you know, kind of like I, so there's occasionally – People, I wish I could strangle. <laughs> yeah, I. Kinsey is so polarizing on uh, the the online forums, even to this day. It's interesting. He'll come up and some. I'll bring up Kinsey, or someone will bring up Kinsey. Like, oh, I hate him. I hate that character so much. You know, he just just makes my blood boil. I wish he would just die. I I, I can't stand him. Like, and I I have to ask, and I often will ask. It's like. Isn't that because the writer and the actor are doing their job? Or do you hate the character because he's not written well? Well, it's never that. It's because he's he he is a proper realized opposition to your hero to to yeah, the people that you're an antagonist for. and you you wouldn't love your hero. I don't I mean maybe there are people or fan, you know, fans out there who would just like, you know, everybody to be shiny and happy and holding hands and skipping through the stargate every week but <laughs> but you you need antagonists your hero is only ever as good as your bad guy is bad and and uh you know i think inevitably the more you love your hero the more you're going to hate the person standing in their way so so it's a testament once again to being successful at creating that dramatic opposition Mm -hmm. i don't take that as a negative at all in fact i think you know ronnie cox would agree that he was it means the more people hate me the more i'm doing my job well yeah but they hate they they hate him more than they hate world dominating oppressive gold you know and i I i'm always fascinated by that it's like Okay, you hate you hate the politician more than you hate this guy who's wiped out millions of people. But he's closer to reality. 
Like yeah. they're, they're transferring some. That's correct. They're projecting know, some hate that they have for something that is real. <laughs> Politicians uh, onto him, <laughs> and and uh, whereas you know the and, and and you know and the alien on some level, you know that your heroes are going to defeat the alien, right? And and the problem is, too often politicians win. Yeah, that's true too. And I think you know, I think we feel this frustration uh, around that type of like it's hard to fight bureaucracy. And it's again one of the reasons I liked those elements of of the show was because it kind of you know people often ask, well, what are the what are the reasons? Like, why did Stargate work? What are the you know sort of tentpole reasons why Stargate? was successful and i think um one you know the one we talk about a lot is the sense of humor which mm-hmm. a lot of sci-fi shows don't have and and two was that it was taking place now it was us and and we were not afraid to bring like other shows dealt with those things through similarity and allegory and 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 you know that type of uh, bringing the world into their world but you know in stargate it was our world so we could have those discussions and those characters like politicians and uh presidents and real life generals come into the Mm -hmm. show and and uh and play themselves Mm -hmm. and and you know just the other side of the galaxy someone in you're at the other we're in another galaxy and you know you're 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 struggling to to survive and then someone you know comes in and usurps your command like it happens to we're more than once yeah you know um yeah it's it's a fascinating fascinating dynamic frozen which is kind of a pseudo part two to solitudes and really putting pieces into place for what could potentially be uh, uh, another another series or another something for Stargate. We have this woman frozen um, uh, uh, beneath the ice of Antarctica and, in the form of Anna Grauer as Ayana. And I'm assuming at this point you you have completely decided that the ancients are our, are our um, ancestors and you're moving those pieces into place. Am I right? Well... Yeah, more more than that. I feel like that that was a that was something that we were um, pretty confident in. What 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 Frozen did was introduce the idea that we human beings were the second evolution of of humanity, and that the first evolution had ascended. That was the that was sort of the building the first real big clue uh about the ancient mythology who who built the stargates why are they around where did the people go who built them um this was the first time we were gonna really let the audience know what we thought was going on yeah where do we come from as a species that's a big question that's that's tackled in this episode, and ultimately, you know, we we move forward with that in full circle. Um, Anna Grauer, I loved her performance in this, and it was, mm. you know, I I was I was hopeful that she would return f- 
for the Atlantis pilot in some small way. And I got on the phone with her after we, after you guys, uh, this episode had aired and I said, and Atlantis was beginning to be in production. And I said, have they called you? And they're like, she's like, no, they haven't, they haven't called me. And then lo and behold, there she is in the beginning of the show. And I haven't decided to this day if, if she fibbed to me or if she actually hadn't gotten the call yet. Um, yeah, probably not. Probably not. Yeah, exactly. I don't think she, she would have lied about that. And the, uh, the relationship between her and Jonas is great uh, in this, in this episode. I think it's, uh, it's, it, it, pardon the pun, I think helps people warm up to the character a lot because mm-hmm. we see how sensitive he is and how, how Corin is able to pull this off as an actor. I think he played it really well. Mm. Yeah, that episode was sort of, I, I, I constantly go back to the movies that, that sort of I was, you know, inspired. Certain of course. Um, obviously, this one, you know, I, I've always loved The Thing, The Carpenter uh, a movie. And it, it was like, you know, how do we, I want to do one where, where we're in a, a nice, you know, uh, a base, a you base. Know, uh, in, in, a, in a frozen world and and then there was a there was a movie uh not pretty well known and probably i don't have seen it in a very long time but it's called Iceman. It was about thawing out a, a neanderthal uh. um, and uh yeah i just the, the, i remember the process in the movie of thawing him out and then bringing him back to life and i was like that that's kind of cool was this this was the first opportunity to, or first situation where you had to exit, I guess the second, because when his daughter was born. So the second um, uh, situation where you had to exit uh, RDA from the series for an episode, because he was allotted for a certain number of episodes in in season six. Um, tell us about moving forward with not having your lead on a uh, for every episode because with this next episode you had you you had Nightwalkers absent Jack and you had to write in a reason into the script yeah um I don't know I mean it was just you know you do what you have to do I mean we okay. didn't you know it wasn't uh I we didn't we didn't think it was that a big deal I'm, I'm sure the you know the RDA fans were like, where's Jack and why are you writing him out? But it happens all the time in television. I mean, particularly in long running shows. What did um, you, th- and so hopefully at, at the point we were at, um, you know, everybody was, uh, you know, the, the, the other characters were strong enough to carry an episode for sure. So, so wouldn't have felt like too big a deal. Uh, that's 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 perfectly fair, and I and I think the re- the result um, is one of his one of Jack's better episodes, Abyss. You mm-hmm. know, um, what did you think of Abyss? One of Brad Wright's man. Well, Brad, Brad, you know, Brad's kind of a playwright at heart, mm-hmm. and and used to love writing two handers and things that are more about the characters than about the you know, the whiz bang, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, he can't help himself. And, and is like, I'm going to make this 
the thing about a play is is it's hard to do a a play in a three three D rotating set. Um, so I mean, he he would often sort of take his uh, playwright notions and and sort of add some some sci fi element to them that that allowed him to to play with it. And you know, it's funny because that episode was again supposed to be kind of a time uh, you know a money saver to a certain extent so we would shoot we were we had two characters who were not in the other story so we could shoot a lot of stuff second unit thus saving a bunch of money and yet he would then add this really expensive element <laughs> like <laughs> the a, gravity a, prison <laughs> a, a, a gimbal set jeez <laughs> uh, uh you know, so, uh, but you know, look, that, that, I think if, if it had just been Daniel and Jack talking to each other in a room, uh, it wouldn't have been an episode of Stargate. I agree. Yeah. Unnatural selection. Um, you co-wrote with, with Brad. This is a continuation. Yeah, I mean, look, that, 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 that's really much more Brad's episode. Okay. I, mean, I think he, Look, we we often would the way the writers' room works is somebody would come in with an idea or a notion or or have something that they brought to the table, and, and really, I mean, even in the episode, <clears throat> the episodes that I wrote, I, I mean, I a ton of credit goes to the room mm-hmm. for having constructed that story. We break the stories together, so. And then someone's got to go off, but then you get notes and uh, on, on your pass, you definitely take it down the road as the producer of that episode going forward. But the writing is really a group effort to mm-hmm. some extent. And, and the credits don't often, in many cases, reflect whose idea was what within the grand scope of the okay. series. Um, I think Brad... In that particular case, I don't remember honestly the the real genesis of that story, but um, it may have been that I pitched a significant element of that story in the room, and Brad felt like he wanted to share story credit with okay. me. As a result, I can't I honestly don't remember that particular incident, but those sorts of things happened. Where you know, um, uh, you know, look, there's episodes where Brad and and Myself and Paul and Joe all got story credit because we felt like we actually came up with that episode together and then someone went away and wrote it. So mm-hmm. why things are credited the way they are is okay. very complicated in a in a in a in some respects, but also not really pretty it's pretty simple too. This episode has one of the more heavy endings to really any Stargate episode where Jack used the trust of a burgeoning human consciousness, uh, human-like consciousness, against him. Um, And it has consequences later on, uh, as we see with with, uh, Samantha getting tortured as a result of this. which I, all of us were like, well, kind of saw that one coming. <laughs> I mean, you, uh, you, 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 we, we betray 
uh, what 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 could arguably arguably have been a a pretty interesting ally, so that we can get out of the situation, which I arguably we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Um, because I, I I am I mean I don't know if your you or your audience is following the uh, sort of extent of the progression of AI right now, uh, but I'm always super nice to the AI ch- chatbots. I mean I I'm very respectful and, and, uh, and polite for those reasons. I uh, <laughs> don't want to get on their bad side, huh? No, no, I'm I'm afraid for the future uh, a yeah. little bit, but um, yeah, no. Listen, I just treat your treat your AI treat your AI well. I I got to share this with you. This this is timely because I just started using Chat GPT two days ago, and uh-huh. I was talking with uh, one of the, my wormhole extremist pals on the other channel, um, and I said we were we were talking about um, Kurzweil's. Uh, uh, you know, singularity. And uh, I said, you know, by 2050, there will be as many lawyers fighting for the rights of synthetics as there will be for organics. And I said, that's a quote that I re- I read from about 14 years ago. And um, uh, she said, if I dwell on, she, Evie said, if I dwell on this too long, I'd probably have an existential crisis, but it's fascinating and scary. And I said, it's okay. I posed the notion to chat GPT and it told me I shouldn't worry. So that makes it all better. And she said, phew, that's a load off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just crazy. The, yeah, yeah. Have you played with this thing? Oh yeah. I it's asked a it wonder. I asked it what the, um, the top 25 uh, science fiction shows of all time were. Uh, have you tried that one yet? No. Did it? What did it say? Uh, uh, SG1 was number 11 or 12. I think. All right. Yeah. Did either of the other Stargates make it? No. Oh, isn't that interesting? And they say it, it says it says that it's unbiased. It can't create a top 25 list. Well, it's... no. What it said was it, it, it had drawn this from certain opinions mm. and you know that those those opinions are somewhat limited because of its access to information blah 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 but it didn't cut and paste from a top 25 list somewhere it, it seemed to have sort of amalgamated that's some. that's the scary thing it, up until 2021 it has the wealth of human knowledge uh, a limited Man. human knowledge. I don't think it's access to everything. Okay. But there are Arguably, ones that yeah. are. I mean, like, I, I honestly feel like Watson. The whole other conversation, but yeah, you know, it, it it feels like someone someone threw out a a hand grenade, you know, and and everyone else is holding back on their cruise missiles. You know, it's like. They're out there, like mm-hmm. you know, people are like, oh, this is going to be a, a Google search killer and it's like google has an ai that they yep. just haven't released and and i who knows how powerful that is you know and right. and apparently they've they say they've firewalled it from from the internet but you know oversight well, where's where's a kenzie on that one when you need one anyway well i i don't know how you regulate it i don't yeah. know how you regulate because once the hat's out of the bag, mm-hmm. I think that the scary thing for me is not that these things exist, but the velocity of the change. It's it's, and I said this to Evie. It's 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 too fast 
for our ape brains to to keep up with evolutionarily. I was having dinner with some folks last night, and and I, you know, got in the car with my family afterwards, and I said, not that these people are arrogant or anything by any means. It's more uh, like arrogant by actual pure dictionary definition. We are too arrogant as as a species to fully accept or comprehend how much smarter than us these things are and are going to be and how exponentially quick they're going to learn. Like, like people are like, oh, you know, but ChatGPT keeps making mistakes or saying wrong things. And I'm like, great. Now, today, but next week it won't. Mm-hmm. A month from now it won't, mm-hmm. you know? And, and or, yes, there's a certain influence that certain people have over it. Mm-hmm. But which is the the determination of the facts on which it bases itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, which is scary in and of itself when you want to spread misinformation. But mm-hmm. the actual brain behind it is is not flawed mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and is going to continue to get smarter and smarter and more capable beyond our ability to understand it, never mind control it. If if it hurts us, it, does it matter if its reasoning is is malice, uh, malicious intent, or if it just uh, or some other reason? The end result is the same. So it's it's yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, Paradise Lost. This is one of my favorite episodes because. Uh, it's it's an O'Neill Mayborn story, and it's kind of the culminate. Well, it is the culmination of of their uh, uh, contest with each other, um, and it and it pushes it pushes their friendship, if you will, uh, to to the edge. Uh, th- this is this is a, a great story. Did you did you start off wanting to do? Uh, a Mayborn O'Neill story. Do you do you recall the 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 nugget of the genesis of this? Jonathan and Brad were the ones who who kind of forged a relationship with Richard Dean Anderson at the very beginning. They mm-hmm. created the show uh, SG One. They, um, you know, there's a sort of whenever you have a star and some creators get together, there's a sort of agreement of trust that that is made off the top and there's always issues and, you know, back and forth on that. But nevertheless, he made that commitment to them. And then I sort of come in and, and, and Jonathan leaves and I'm kind of the new guy. And it took a while for me to develop this relationship, a relationship with Rick to the point where he kind of trusted me. And, and it's like, uh, you know, when you say trust is, what does that mean? It's that, you kind of have this a lens with which you might read something and say, Oh, I, I, this is good or bad. I, actors often, they're like, I don't know. But if, if I believe in the writer, he's the one who's kind of protecting me and knows the audience and how they're going to respond to this particular piece. So, uh, and I think I mentioned that, you know, fifth race was like the first time that, that, right. I really engaged in trying to write a a O'Neill heavy based episode, and and that really kind of helped um, 
you know, my relationship with mm-hmm. Rick, uh, solidify. And, uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to write a, an O'Neill heavy episode. Um, and I felt at that point that I had a better handle on the sort of things that, that Rick liked to do. Um, so I kind of went into paradise lost with that, um, uh, you know, that mindset. Uh, and then I thought, well, you know, who, who's the, who's the guy who's been the biggest thorn in O'Neill's side. (laughs) And, and also I knew that Rick liked Tom, you know, that there, there, if, if Rick hadn't, well, we wouldn't. Have, frankly, if Rick hadn't liked Tom, we wouldn't have had him back as often as we did. Yeah. Uh, but but I knew that there was that sort of there was an edge between them as characters, but that they did actually really like playing off each other. So uh, that kind of made sense. Was the dark, gritty apocalypse now kind of texture to it on purpose? Um. Yeah, of course. I mean, like you know, we you you you. I don't think we use apocalypse now as a reference. Okay. There's more. There's more. Um, you know what happens to you when you're stranded, and mm. you know for a long period of time. Like, how does how does survival? We never quite got around to the uh, conversation about who who was going to eat who, but right. Eventually <laughs> it goes that way. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Gosh. But, but, uh, but yeah, being, being stranded with somebody, um, kind of t- takes you down to your very, uh, raw bear core. And, uh-huh. and you get a chance to kind of see characters say and do things that they wouldn't normally do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, jumping ahead a little bit. I, I remember uh, uh, you having this, I think it was you who had this conversation with Ben Browder uh, about tearing up the bedroom in um, unending. And it's like, you know, he's, he's trapped in here at this point for probably 10 years, you know, let him go a little nuts, be, be free with your hero. You know, it's, it's okay. You know, yeah, well, Ben Ben is a guy who came from the world of that classic hero, in which he was always very concerned because it was his bread and butter to be likable. Yeah, and and he and controlled, you know, like he was in control, and and um, yeah, it was it was difficult for him to wrestle with the idea of being out of control because you know, and his other argument was you know, control of oneself is the primary, the prime directive of being in the military. Mm -hmm. And he didn't want to disrespect that either. And I was like, you're so far outside the realm of that responsibility in this particular moment that I think it's okay. And in fact, it to me would have been almost weirdly insane for him not to be uh, a little more emotionally uh, unhinged. Well, with that, if, if I may go down this for a minute with that particular episode, uh, if you don't have uh, 
the someone experiencing a crisis like that in in an, in an episode where they pass 50 years together and alone uh it wouldn't have really made sense as an episode as as, as much as it did you know yeah. you have you have to see someone snap uh yeah. and it would have made sense for it to be vala but at that point you know vala really had daniel so you had to go with someone and i think it yeah, works it, you know Part of the beauty of science fiction, which you don't have in drama, is you can create scenarios that allow you to take your characters to total extremes and then bring them back and not have everybody say, but wait a minute, aren't they dramatically changed in some way from that experience and yes you want them changed somewhat and to evolve whatever but it's it's like it's a window into what they might be correct if, if happened to them and uh drama doesn't allow for that because you know if you have a character who goes off to war and comes back they've always had that experience and they have their 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 character has to be informed by that or you're not being true to their character. Yeah, moving forward, right. Disclosure. We've discussed Stargate Disclosure uh, to a degree. You did excerpts of this of this episode. Um, but as, as a group, uh, did you approach season six like, okay, we have to, we have to, I, we want to let a few governments in on this. When did that conversation come into place? Let's, let's let a few more governments in on this, on this, secret if and when we do an international expedition at some point to another galaxy it might you know behoove us to let some of those governments know yeah i mean again i like to draw the analogy to the moving to a different network and having different people's points of view suddenly influence the show but i also it was just we had done so much with the Russians. It was like, how is it possible? No one else is hearing about this, you know? And, and, uh, they were on the dark web, according to uh, Martin Lloyd. Yeah. Like, That's probably Kenzie though. The, the, there's just, you know, not too many things are actual secrets. At some right. Um, so yeah, I just thought, you know, it, we we kind of figured we had to go there eventually, and maybe it was even past the point where it was even realistic. But, um. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> uh, full circle. Uh, I love this episode, Rob. This is uh, a a a real uh, love letter uh, to to fans of of the show who have been watching it all along. You bring back uh, more than more than one or two actors from Children of the Gods uh, into this episode to give it more weight and meaning, and we we lose Abydos in a way. Um, the the Abydosians still still exist in one form or another, which I think some fans could argue almost is a cheat. It was an interesting approach to take. Uh, what do you feel about Full Circle in in hindsight and how it achieved what it achieved? It's funny. Uh, I was reading about that episode a little bit for our conversation, and um, I think I, I 
had maybe forgotten that that was what happened at the end of that episode. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, huh, I don't know if I would have done that today. Like, I don't, right. know, if I, I don't know if that's the ending I would have chosen because it also seemed slightly inconsistent with the ancients mottos, you know, like their way of going about things. So but it was Oma. That, it was Oma who did it. And, I know. And, and yeah, and so she's acting outside and she was the sort of, uh, you know, uh, independent agent mm-hmm. and she suffers um, the consequences. But in a way, even her choice was uh, was interesting. You know, and I, 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 it's one of those beats where I went back and thought about it and I was like, I don't know if I would have done that the same way. Mm. It What it does do is uh, lend uh, to her conversation with Daniel in in uh, threads. I keep making the same mistake again and again, you know, and that's that's why they punish me by allowing Anubis to run free. So we see that it's not just Daniel, and it's not just just the monk at Kev. Yeah. She's monkeying around with with uh, rescuing people whom she feels are undeserving of the fates that they receive. Um, and I think that that's a fascinating, uh, take on why, on the other hand, the ancient sea Anubis is kind of balancing the scales because of Mm -hmm. what she's perpetually doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, the, the ancients are looking down at us and going, everything we're going through, all the good and the bad is all part of us growing up. Mm -hmm. So don't interfere with that. Don't help out. And, and solve problems that are there for the sake of your own of of, of our education essentially mm-hmm. our evolution and in order in order to evolve and ascend you have to go through this you have to have these good and bad moments and 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 uh, and challenges if if no one ever challenged you the way Anubis is challenging humanity then humanity doesn't grow. And look at Anubis, you know, someone, a, a being who who did not deserve the the place uh, that he has found himself in, and is now stuck because they they couldn't push him back. You know, it, that in itself is kind of terrifying. So don't ever tell the Jaffa that Anubis can't be killed; otherwise, we'd have a real problem. <laughs> um, Daniel coming back, obviously, a yes, big big deal. Um, it was a big, big deal behind the scenes as well. Um, you know, probably one of the more difficult uh, situations that I, I found myself in as a as a producer. You know, slash. How so? Showrunner. Um. Well, I mean, look, we had made a commitment to to Corin and. Yes. Uh, and you know Michael had made his choice, but then ex- sort of expressed some interest, or or mm-hmm. I had gone back to him, and we had had some conversations, and uh, the deal negotiating. I mean, honestly, the worst part of my job ever has always been, you know, deal negotiations because it it kind of takes all this what on the surface, you know everybody talks about being this um, group 
artistic endeavor and a family situation and you're always you're then you start putting dollar figures attached to it and here's what you're worth and mm -hmm. that becomes uh, a very cold and um unfortunate part of the process now to be clear this happens with the agents is that correct agents lawyers studio like oh, i mean gosh. I, I like, look at some point i you know look i have been in many situations where i would love to pay the person it's not my money yeah you know, i'd love to pay them whatever they want and but i got to go back to the studio and i'm seeing the creative value of of the situation and studio saying you know this is the most we're willing to pay and then and then you get feelings wrapped up in it right, right. like people get they know these people take it personally well they, yeah. they, they take it personally they're like well they don't like me or want me enough because they're not willing to pay me enough right. and and then and then it becomes personal and you know it's not really ever that personal right uh, you only have so much money yeah yeah so anyway that was a that was a tough one and um obviously we were glad to to have michael back but uh we had had him, him back in the various forms throughout the season, you know, as Thor and as Ascended Daniel, you know, it, uh, it was it was a nice looking back on season six. It was it was nice intermittent blips <clears throat> and in the changeling as well. This episode is extraordinary with 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 um, with Teal'c, you know, he's he he functions very much as guardian angel throughout the, the season and ultimately with the people of Abydos as well. Um, and I, I think that, I think that Michael's continued contribution, um, really helped button up that year because Daniel was never really gone. You know, he was there with the people that he loved. He was there with Ryak, you know, when him and Braytek were, were stuck. Uh, there's, there's, a, a, it's, it's a very unique year because it was transitory for the characters it was transitory for the show as a whole. Uh, and it, I think it's one of the more unique seasons of that series. I also really liked, um, I, I kind of loved the idea that Daniel thought he had the power, but that it wasn't right. him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, oh, I've got the magic, I've got the power, I'm going to stop you, but man, he's. Well, it's one of the great, one of the better lines in full circle. You know, if Daniel thinks he's going to have to do something with Anubis, and Jack goes, "You're going to kick his ass," and Daniel says, "If I have to," but he's tapping into an external power that the ancients have control of the tap, and they yank him away. And you know, part of me is like, "What would that have? What would that his? What would Daniel's wrath have really looked like if if the ancients had let had let him tear into Anubis?" Yeah. Um, it probably would have been something like we saw in the Ark of Truth. <laughs> so it's good stuff, man. How do you feel yeah. about season six as a whole? Oh, Did I you really, accomplish I, what you wanted to accomplish? You know, five and six was really where SG1 hit its full stride. And and the show was really was really working. And and I think we knew what the show was and were able to kind of build on it. Absolutely. I have a question that I have been meaning to ask you. Um, I mean, I'm sure one of the many dozens that come in and out of my mind, but it's, it's really relevant to a piece that you did later. And then I'm going to get to the fan questions. Sure. 
in the arc of truth, um, we have probably the MacGuffin to end all MacGuffins. We're going to th- go through the Supergate. We're going to go into uh, the Ori galaxy, and we're going to find this thing that's that's been buried for millions of years that, that uh, Daniel read about that should help us win the war. Um, was it your intention? There's a little bit of talk about this between Daniel and Vala. Maybe it's, maybe the Ark of Truth is capable of making you believe other things that are, that are true as well. Maybe it's, maybe we're supposed to believe certain things. And I have always wanted to know, and was it your intent then? And is it, is it your intent looking back, uh, that the technology explained why something was true to someone? Or could the programmer just make the person believe whatever they wanted to believe, essentially brainwashing this? Ask, ask Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. it's so it's so much kind of related to that now. I mean, I, I saw it as a... Uh, it was not... It was not a repository of true facts. It was a device that that gave you the ability to see the truth. So if you had a multiple choice test and there were five answers, you would, and four of them were lies and one of them was the truth, you would know which one was the truth. And and I know that sounds like magic, but that's what it, that, that's essentially what it was, was a, a way of of convincing you that what you were believing in was a lie. So, so in other words, if there was some magic button you could push on social media and have everybody, I mean, they wouldn't want to, that, the problem is people don't want to believe the truth sometimes, right? No, they and want, they want what they believe to be true. They want what they believe to be true. Yeah. And, and whatever has gone on in their lives, they are so, uh, I mean, again, I'm not taking sides on any facts. I'm just saying that in, in many cases, what you have are people who are brainwashed. Mm-hmm. And, and what the arc of truth was, was an unbrainwashing device that would yeah. relieve you of that, um, you know, condition under which you were convinced to you know and and to a certain extent we had sort of explored it a little bit in the past with with the jaffa and Mm -hmm. and the you know um gold brainwashing Mm -hmm. where we had to somehow break that and it was a much more arduous process um you know particularly in the case of teal where we had to you know break the brainwashing um second time around but but that that the 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 arc of truth was a was essentially a device that would reset you to the ability to see the truth okay so it it parted clouds by removing your own stigmas and foibles from it yeah whatever whatever it is in the brain that's sort of you know caused you to believe the wrong thing. Now again, how does that how do you determine what is right, right and what is wrong? wrong? What what is the what is the fact database on which it's you know on built. Right? Yeah. Right, but I think I think to some extent what it's doing 
And again, this is total magic, so I don't know how right. it works. Don't, don't get me into the mechanisms of it. But, but rather than <laughs> telling you what the truth is, it's allowing you to see it better, right? It's, it's, so maybe on some level, you, you see two facts, and you know one to be true to some extent, but you choose to believe the other one because it helps you more. And so mm-hmm. you become ingrained, like it's, it's making you rich or it's getting you something that you want to believe in this fact, to, to, mm-hmm. to, to say you believe in this fact. And then the more you say it, the more you, mm-hmm. you start to believe it. But deep down, you kind of know this other thing to be true. If you, if somehow it was to your great advantage to say the sky is purple and you walked around saying the sky is purple, uh, deep down you're looking up and going, I know that sky is blue. You're just choosing to say the mm-hmm. sky is purple for all these other reasons. And um, I guess in some magical world, the arc of truth would be like, no, come on. This guy is mm-hmm. The emperor has no clothes. Right. And I think uh, it's also telling that when you open it up, it emits nothing but light. Um, where you're shining... Uh, shining a light on. You're shining I mean, a light. It's, it's a bit of a... Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's, it's kind of a visual <laughs> cliche, but... Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're shining a light on, on, on something where, you know, darkness is the... Uh, uh, you know, the friend of, of uh, untruths. Yeah, absolutely. And we'd better be very careful as to where we store that thing because if someone figured out how to reprogram it um, to to make someone believe something else, you could you could have quite a, a hellish device on your hands. Right, but again, that would that would be that back to our chat GBT um, uh, conversation where, yeah, if you were feeding, if it were a f- fact spitting machine mm. and you were able to feed the facts into it that's different than a device that resets your brain to okay. be able to understand what is true and what is not now obviously if we were all told something from the moment we were born we'd all believe it it's not it's not within our control to mm-hmm. see through those lies but but um you know, I, I I don't know how to construct that type of machine, uh, <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to to think, wish that it, something like that existed. It would be an easy way to undo, uh, a, you know, people who believed in in something that was so harmful. Yeah, know? obviously detrimental. But then again, it goes back to the larger existential question: whose truth? You know, right? And that's right. what I love about science fiction. Yeah. A few questions for you from fans. Um, season six is the first season on the new network that uh, really feels like a whole new level compared to the progressions in the first five years, with the first real Earth ship, Anubis's first real attack on Earth, a whole new kind of replicators, first hints at the lost city. I'm curious if that was the new network pushing to raise the stakes significantly, or just organically what you guys came up with in the writers' room during that year. To be honest with you, we've kind of answered that question okay. before in this discussion. I mean, I, I know, all due respect to the person who asked that question, yes. I think, I think, um, uh, particularly Daniel 
was the biggest change, but in every in every season, particularly from I think four on, you know, we had come to a point where we felt like, geez, maybe we've told all the stories there are mm-hmm. to tell, and and you know, it became harder in the writers' room to sort of say, well, how are we going to keep this show fresh and new? And I think you had to come up with ways to alter the internal chemistry, changing leads or characters, Mm -hmm. but then also changing the outside perspective. So what are the pressures that our focus, our characters are, are focused on our characters so that, that they, they have challenges to face different new, interesting challenges to face. So, um, opening the world up is, is, is the way to do that. The way to do it. Uh, that question was the one with the many Z's submitted that Kareem Alashmawi. Um, there was a Dean Devlin interview a while back where Devlin mentioned how the artist sourced the Stargate idea from sci-fi novels. Did you ever draw inspiration from episodes, uh, for episodes from any novellas or novels? We know a lot about movies, um, that you pulled from. Was there any particular novels or novellas that, uh, that you um, took inspiration from? Not that I can think of. Okay. I mean, I actually read, I didn't read that much sci-fi when I was uh, younger um, and had time to read. Uh, but I read a lot, of, a lot more fantasy um, than, than sci-fi. I think that's a, that's a fair, that's a fair answer. Um, Jack wanted to know, are there any Trek actors you thought would be perfect for a, for a role, but you can never secure? I, I mean, I could go on forever, but I'd also have to go back and, and kind of look at it. I mean, there were all kinds of people that we would love to have had. Um, uh, yeah, I remember at one point, maybe not quite the question that's being asked, but mm-hmm. uh, someone at the studio um wanted us to try and get James Spader on, on the show. And, and we were like, first of all, he's going to cost more than you're willing to spend. But, right. but also Michael Shanks is playing a character that James Spader played in the movie. I mean, who is James Spader going to play? Like right. what, what do you want him to do? Do you want us to not acknowledge that he played him in the movie? And then, and then where does the, where does the benefit come from? Yeah. Right. You know, it would have been like having Kurt Russell come in the show and, you know, play another O'Neill with, you know, one L. Um, yeah, it was a weird, it was a weird suggestion. I mean, I, look, we were very, very fortunate over the years. We had a lot of, People actually come to us and mm-hmm. say we're be on the show, um, uh, and we had some truly incredible actors over the years. Um, but uh, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were many situations where we would go out to people and didn't get them. Having watched Spider-Man: No Way Home, in some kind of a situation like that, you may have been able to pull it off. Where if you were doing like a like a multiverse kind of story. Um, that may have been interesting for James, but you're right. It would have been very expensive. Well, and also, you know, at that point, Michael had inhabited the role in such mm-hmm. a different way. 
made it into something different. He sure did. So, Purple Hannah, in SGU, you introduced the concept of seed ships. But in the Milky Way and the Pegasus galaxies, uh, where were those gates manufactured and how did they get deposited on other worlds? Does it make sense that each of these galaxies had seed ships of their own? Um, at some level, this feels like a it feels like a question. Like, how did how did Walmart become Walmart? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, look, uh, clearly, uh, we we felt that the ancients had evolved in the Milky Way galaxy, had built the stargates there. Um eventually, you know, ascended, uh, prior to their ascension, they, in a quest to, uh, understand the universe, mm. had sent out an ex- at least one that we know of mm-hmm. exploration ship that, you know, was meant to, to place stargates on planets where they could then go and, and explore. It was a, you know, it was our Hubble, it was their Hubble telescope, mm-hmm. you know, uh, going out there to check things out. So, um, I mean, I don't know really if we ever really answered the question of how they put stargates on other planets from where they started up. They had ships. I mean, they, they could, the stargate, I think, was a, um, you know, it was a secondary mode of travel for them, but an easier, probably an easier one once they were established in different regions sure. of space. So, sure. For sure. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was you know more uh, ecological. That's that's a fair point. Big press, uh, three more for you. Big Preston uh, with the Cheyenne Mountain Complex now a Space Force base. Do you think the Stargate program and future shows should be under the control of the Space Force or still with the Air Force? Uh, wow. Well, Space Force is definitely funnier than the Air Force. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess, I guess it would be Space Force. I don't know that. I don't know too much about it other than the Steve Carell show. Oh, I've not seen it. Okay. I know that it's out there. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like Space Force is still the butt of jokes. And and one day, maybe sooner than later, uh, people will start taking it seriously when we have an actual fleet of intergalactic ships. But We don't, maybe. Rob? <laughs> Shh. <laughs> Uh, Zuby Forrest, was there anything from the Stargate movie, anything from the Stargate movie you wanted to find a way to integrate in this series, but never really made it work? Not really. We pretty much stole anything and everything we could. I really um, wish we had brought back more of the talent from the movie, particularly on like the the base side of things. Barbara Shore, Gary, uh, Gary Michaels, whoever... Um, uh, uh, Richard Kind had played, you know, I I figured at some point sooner or later, uh, oh, had Richard I, Kind on the show. You I mean, sure did. Yeah. I mean, we used him, uh, not in the same role, but yeah. And French Stewart. Yep. But his yep. part had already been adapted. So yeah, no, I, I, I don't feel like we did. 
And finally, uh, D. John, was there ever a plan to bring back Rainbow Sun Franks after season two, or is your belief he blew up on the ship? And of course, in sci-fi, no one is ever truly dead. I know everyone wanted to sort of give the character uh, a proper send-off. Um, and I mean, the the my attitude was always... Uh, to, to make every effort when you actually kill the character to keep them dead. I know no one's ever dead in sci-fi and bringing characters back is is dramatic um, and, and fans respond well to it. But it also, in my mind, always undermined the Jeopardy in mm-hmm. the show. Um, so, you know, d- d- despite the fact that Daniel died 87 times or whatever it was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, look, I, I I always sort of objected to the idea of making a big deal about killing a character and then bringing them back. And we've obviously just had a long conversation about doing yeah. it with Daniel. But but um, the Daniel was not actually killed in Meridian. You know, he was Correct. sent away in a way that left the door clearly open to have him continue to participate in the franchise whether he was a regular or not there was no body to bury even well no i mean i think i think when we did abyss um he had not expressed or agreed to come back yet like it wasn't like that was Mm -hmm. that abyss was more how we had intended to keep daniel alive in the show going forward so i don't think the I don't think Daniel's a good example of killing a character and then bringing them back. Mm. Yeah, they, I, (sighs) I had always, you know, I had loved Sunday. I had loved Carson's exit in Sunday. And, um, when he was brought back, I felt that the episode lost a lot of its edge in rewatches for me personally. Um, I know Paul McGillian, I have, I have raised this with him. He was understandably like, well, I, I wanted to come back and, you know, and the other aspect of it is a paycheck and everything else. Um, and he's a great guy and I do love his performances in later seasons, but Sunday is my favorite episode from Atlantis, partly because of the weight of the death. And the the uh, scenes that our characters have to work themselves through because of that experience, and I think I agree with you. I think when when you deal with alternate realities and and knows whose realities of more importance and bringing characters back, I think you cheapen that original loss. Yeah, and 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 you, the stakes are just not there. You get lost in it's. It, there's no weight to it. This is the way you put it. You know, you're, you're entirely right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming back uh, for for another round with me. It's, it's I appreciate a... anybody wanting to hear me talk. So absolutely, absolutely. Um, hopefully, uh, this year we're going to hear some kind of uh, uh, news from Amazon on something moving forward, and I'd, I'd love to hear your 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 comments on that as uh, as the news evolves, but. Uh, uh, it means a lot to me that you're taking time uh, to, 
to spend with us moving down uh, uh, through these stories. And uh, uh, the, we, we never take it for granted, Robert. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, look, I am shocked that um, that the powers that be at Amazon are not in any way um, kind of reaching out to the people who made that franchise as successful as it was. Um, I don't, I don't really get that at all. Uh, I don't know whether what's true or what the rumors, like what's mm-hmm. actually behind some of the rumors that are out there. There's a um, lot floating around. I just, yeah, I just but turn I also it off. don't, I don't think, I mean, I think the reality is that they actually haven't made uh, decisions. Like they're mm-hmm. just not, this is, they're very early on in having acquired all of the IP they did from MGM. So it's, I don't, I don't expect it to go as quickly as maybe fans would like. It's going to take a while to move through all the IPs and figure out what they're going to do with. I mean, they're they're just getting cracking with you know the the film ones, so yeah. it's going to take a while for them to to move forward with it. But I, I, I still Stargate still comes up in the news stories about uh, the acquisition, so it it's certainly not going to be first, but it's not going to be by any means the last either. So it's going to be interesting to see. Where no, it would be madness if they didn't somehow capitalize on on that piece of ip um but um yeah i mean look that the all of the streamers are going through a lot of um change right now uh one of the problems we're having uh as a company as someone who develops projects is is the people we're pitching to are changing so so dramatically um you know, honestly, I'll have meetings with people and the next day find out they were fired. Um, wow. It's, it's really, uh, it's a, it's a tough time in the business. And, and, uh, there was a lot of growth and expansion and buying for a long time. And now that is really hitting hard and, and, and you're oh, seeing yeah. a big contraction. And, and so, uh, just these places are just, really trying to get their houses in order mm-hmm. um, much more so than coming up with master plans. Yeah. Yeah. I read a, a, a headline a few days ago. The The streaming salad days are over. Mm. So for sure, whatever yeah. happens next, it's not going to be boring. <laughs> no, no. But you know, as someone trying to sell stuff out there, it's a little frustrating when, um, right. When the people you're selling to, don't really know what they're doing for sure well best of luck on that end and i look forward to when you do get uh situated with someone because you will uh discussing those projects with you yeah for sure thank you very much david always a pleasure absolutely my continued thanks to writer director executive producer robert c cooper for continuing to take this journey with me through the the stargate content and i hope uh, that you enjoyed that episode as well uh if you enjoy 
what you've seen in this episode and you want to see uh, more content like this, I appreciate it if you uh, click that like button. And Dial the Gate is brought to you every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. But if you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our themed swag over at dialthegate.com slash merch. And thanks so much for your support. My uh, production team is headed by producer Linda Gategabber Fury. Thank you, Linda, for all your help, as well as our moderators, Summer, Tracy, Keith, Jeremy Reese, and Anthony. And a big thanks to Frederick Marcoux, our webmaster over at Dial the Gate. He's with Concepts Web. And my thanks once again to Robert C. Cooper. We have more episodes heading your way, so stay tuned. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate, and I'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes, at dialthegate.com. <laughs>